Well, I'm very happy to be with you again this evening, and I'm very grateful for your presence tonight. Uh, thank you, Lon, for reading our scripture and Stan for leading our singing, such fine singing tonight, and the very fine prayers. We're very grateful for them and for your presence as well. I think sometimes uh, one sermon sort of leads me into another. It's often that way for me for some reason. As I spoke about the matter of being a soul winner for Christ this morning and tried to spend just a little bit of time discussing how we could do that. All of us can be in that process and in that great work as we go throughout life. It led me to think about a subject that I've thought a great deal about. And I don't know that I've ever really been able to plummet the depths of this great subject, and that's the joy of salvation. And I think one thing that I see out of the New Testament is that the New Testament Christians were men and women who were filled with great joy. And you would think if you were outside looking in at them, why would they be so happy? Why would they be people, men and women, of great joy in their life? After all, are they not social outcasts from the community? Have they not been persecuted and persecuted severely, both by the Jews and by the Romans? Have there not been ridiculous rumors spread about them, the design of which was to prejudice the people's thinking against them? And yet, they are happy. And even when they're led to death, they sing praises. But it would have to be because they're filled with a different kind of joy. It must not be the kind of joy the world counts as joy and happiness. The mirth that they are filled with when they're involved in their drunken parties. Or the happiness that they think they enjoy from the sensual pleasures of the pagan world. Or the joys that come through the, through the physical luxuries that so many people acquire and try to clamor after and accumulate more and more. It must be a different kind of happiness which would allow these people to have a spring in their step and a smile on their face. And even though they live in the most difficult of times, still being faithful to God and faithful to Christ, they're happy. You know, when people are in love with each other and they truly love each other, well, they're happiest when they're together. And so it is when children of God put on Jesus Christ and Christ becomes the important one in their life, they are happy. This passage in Romans chapter 8, I'd like to start our discussion tonight looking at it. As I prescind from the point of being a soul winner, to understanding the great joy and happiness that can be ours when we turn to Christ and we let Christ truly live in our life. Notice as we have in this eighth chapter of the book of Romans, a challenging chapter, but one that is so helpful, so beneficial in letting us know that God has not just left us alone here to live the Christian life. He helps us, helps us through his word. He helps us providentially. For I consider, verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory 
that is to be revealed to us. These people understood the intent of that, and they understood the significance of it, and for that reason they had a happiness about them, even though their circumstances were severe. Verse 37, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a wonderful attitude to have, even though they face such trials of life. They're a happy people. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Rome may be able to separate us from our loved ones. The Jews may be able to persecute us and persecute us to death, but who can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, shall it be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All of these were very real things in their lives, yet they're happy. And he quotes the scripture as he often does. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. Romans 8 and 36. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the man who wrote that particular passage, an inspired man of God, was a man who understood persecution and suffering, but he also understood something else, the joy of salvation. And I want to understand that. I want to learn as much as I can what the Bible has to say about that matter. Because God wants me to be happy. My circumstances don't determine my happiness. But there are other things that can determine my happiness. And I want to study about that with you tonight. So that we can understand what it means to be truly happy. In Acts chapter 16, uh, the Bible tells us the story of Paul and Silas as they go on across the Bosporus Straits into Europe and carry the gospel there for the first time. There they do, they go to the city of Philippi and they go on the Sabbath day. There by the riverside and there are some ladies there that are worshiping. And one of those ladies listens to the discussion by Paul and there he tells her about Christ and I'm sure all the prophecies that were fulfilled and all of the implication of that and she's baptized and all her household is baptized when she learns about this matter. The first convert in Europe, as far as we know. There in turn, they continue to do their work day by day, serving the Lord. Paul and Silas, they come upon a slave girl. The slave girl continues to speak out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this day after day. And finally, Paul turned... The text says he was annoyed at this, and he commanded that uh, in the name of Christ that the spirit that was in her come out. And that very moment, she was relieved of that terrible demon. Now, when the owners, the slave owners, found out that their instrument of profit was gone, now they bring Paul and Silas up on charges. You would think that after performing such a miracle as this, they'd be filled with a great deal of wonder and awe. 
that they would come to him and accept him and embrace the message of Paul. But they didn't do it. They brought them up on charges and tried to rally a crowd against them, and they beat them severely, the Bible says, and threw them into prison. Our Roman prison is not a fun place to be. The Supreme Court has caused communities and cities to improve the lives of convicts in prisons throughout the country. But that certainly is not the case in the Roman prison. The text tells us that they were put into an inner prison. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, I don't know how I would react to this mistreatment at Philippi. I probably would be the kind of person who says, you know, I've tried my best, I did my best, and look what happened. I would hope if I knew my own heart that I wouldn't be that way. But I'm afraid I'd probably be a person who would complain and complain and complain. The first thing I would probably complain about is the food. Is this all we got to eat? But I probably would find all kinds of reasons to complain and maybe even become bitter and maybe even become angry. Why did God let this happen to me? After all, I'm his servant and I'm trying to do the will of God. But what do these men do in verse 25? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. There was an inner joy of their salvation. That's hard for us, I suppose, to understand. How is it that through great difficulties and sacrifices like that, that they can be singing praises to God? I just have an idea that those prisoners in the jails of Philippi had never heard hymns sung at midnight before in jail. And they probably thought this is an unusual thing <coughs> for prisoners to be doing. <coughs> Singing and being happy about the circumstances in which they find themselves and still praising God. It was Paul who wrote in Philippians chapter 4 and 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. It's in the imperative mood. It's a command. Paul was in prison when he wrote it. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'd like to understand. I'd like to tap in to this kind of joy so that I can have the kind of joy that they have to understand what it really means to be a happy person, regardless of the circumstances around there. A lot of times our circumstances are hard to handle. I know. We've mentioned the name of a saintly lady tonight. In the hospital, had another stroke. Sometimes circumstances are difficult for us, they're hard for us to handle. But our joy is not attached to the circumstances or the things of life. How is it that these men could sing praises to God? They understood something of the joy of their conversion. They knew what it was like to be in sin, and they knew the terrible consequences of sin, but they've been freed from that. Sin causes a debt to the law of God. I've broken the law of God, and therefore I owe God. I'm indebted to him. But in this particular regard, we see that the debt has been released, and I'm no longer under the debt of God. Thus they 
are happy because they know something of what it means to know the enormity of sin and how that sin has been forgotten. God now forgets the sin. You know, I can't be happy. Can't do it. If I'm going to carry around the life of sin on my shoulders, if I'm going to go around all my life with my sin on my back, I can't get rid of it. I try to let time smooth it over and diminish it. But somehow or another, it's always going to come back. And it haunts us because we've never really dealt with sin appropriately. Oh, there are all kinds of self-help books out there that will try to help us deal with ourselves and our, our psychological well-being and our, our best interest and keep it in our hearts so that we feel better about ourselves. But there's no real way to be happy in this life if you're going to shoulder a lifetime of sin and carry that around. The joy of salvation causes me to be released from the debt of sin. I don't owe this now. God has forgotten the matter. And what a great joy that is. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19 and 10. This is why he came in Romans 5 and verse 6, why he died for the ungodly. He didn't die just for the elect's sake, as our Calvinist friends would want to teach, but he died for the ungodly. He died for everybody. All those who respond to the gospel of Christ will receive the gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sin. As he rises from the dead and he speaks to his apostles, he tells them in Mark 16, 15, Go into all the world, tell the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. They'll know the joy of forgiveness, the joy of salvation. Tell everybody that. If they'll respond to that, they'll receive forgiveness of sin and there's great joy. To repent of sin, be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. By the blood of Christ, sins are washed away. Now, there is great joy in salvation and conversion to Christ. But somebody will say to me, but Brother Laws, I'm a religious person and I'm not happy. I'm a religious person. And I just don't feel this joy. I don't feel the joy of salvation. I don't feel the joy of conversion. And I'm a religious person. There are probably several reasons for that. One is perhaps you're looking at a different kind of joy than what God speaks of in the Scripture. We're not talking about a shallow, surfacey, emotional type of feeling. We're talking more about a deep-centered satisfaction in life knowing that one has done what God has told them to do, and they have complied with the will of God. That we can actually go to the Scripture and read that Scripture and see how it's applied to us, and you say in your heart, I did that. I'm following that. I'm learning more about that, and I'm applying more of that into my life. There's a joy and a sense of satisfaction in that. It is not a surfacy, shallow type of feeling, but it's more of a deep-centered satisfaction and joy, knowing that I've done the will of the Lord and I've done my best and God's grace is going to save me from my sins and carry me to glory. However, some religious people will go to a denominational church and they never open up the Bible. 
if they open up the Bible, they may reference a verse here or a verse there, but the comments that are coming from the pulpit never really are a deep-seated understanding and discussion of what the passage means and how to apply it to our life. In fact, many of them are more concerned about the issues of the day, the social political issues of the day, than they are with regard to their own soul's condition than the souls of others and their condition. When you're involved in a congregation or a people that really do not have the confidence in the Word of God that they ought to have, and they do not share the substantive Word of God to others and follow it implicitly, then in turn you're not going to have the joy that God has in store for you as you ought. Turn with me to an example. Perhaps it will help explain what I'm trying to say here tonight. It's found for us in Acts chapter 8. In the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, a man has gone to Jerusalem to worship and he's on his way back. He's riding in an old iron chariot. He traveled thousands of miles to worship God. Isn't that amazing? From Ethiopia... It's amazing. You know, it's hard for us to get people to worship God right down the street, riding in their very fine, comfortable automobiles. But here's an Ethiopian who traveled miles and miles in an old iron chariot to worship God in Jerusalem. He's coming back. I just have an idea that this Ethiopian probably has questions in his mind. He's wondering. He might even have some doubts in his mind. I don't know. The Spirit of God told Philip, go to the chariot and teach that man. And Philip, the Bible says, went to the chariot. And there as he was invited to come up into the chariot, he began to discuss with this man. Now, he had been to worship, as I had mentioned. And it tells us that he was reading the Scripture, and one of the questions that Philip had, do you understand what you're reading? That's so important to understand the Scripture. It's not enough just to read the Scripture. We've got to understand the Scripture. We've got to understand them God's way. And this man says, you know, I just don't understand it. How can I? I need somebody to help me understand the Scriptures. And so he began at that verse. And he was reading from Isaiah the prophet. You and I had studied this verse on other occasions. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34, the dialogue begins again between the two. He said, now is he talking about himself? You see, he's got questions about the Bible. Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? There Philip started at that very verse and began to preach to him about Jesus and the gospel of Christ. And you know what the next verse says? They came to a certain water and that Ethiopian said, stop, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? You see, when a person's talking about Christ to another person, Eventually, that conversation is going to come around to the point of being baptized into Christ so that one can get the relief from the penalty of sin and the forgiveness of a past life. And so Philip and the eunuch go down into the water, and Philip baptizes this man. He immerses this man in water. He does so because this is the way one will come in contact with the blood of Christ. 
which pays for the price of the penalty of sin. But the reason I see this particular passage is verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. The joy of salvation. How is it that he had the joy of salvation? Because he could go to the Scripture, and he could learn that what I did is what the Scripture says right here. I didn't just do this for this person's opinion or that person's opinion or that I thought it was a good idea, but I had the joy of salvation because I know I did what God told me to do. And I did it the way God gave me to do it and the reason God gave. That's why I did this. And he authenticates what he does by the word of God. And he has a joy of salvation now. A joy of conversion because he knows he's done. What God has told him to do, not some opinion, not some tradition, but what the Word of God is really giving us as far as our responsibility is concerned. It may be that I'm speaking to someone tonight who's never obeyed the gospel of Christ. And you've never come to the point in your heart and your mind where you said, now here's water. One hinders me from being baptized into Christ to reenact in my life the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, Romans chapter 6, 4 through 6. How is it that they had this great joy? Because they understood something of the joy of spiritual prosperity. Now, I'm not talking about physical prosperity. But there is a spiritual prosperity that we perhaps have neglected and need to consider carefully. You and I are studying on Wednesday nights the book of James, and we haven't quite got to this verse yet, but I'd like to reference it now in this point about verse 16 and verse 17 of the first chapter. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James 1, now verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This passage is amazing for several reasons. It's found for us in James chapter 1 and verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from God the Father. He blesses us and blesses us over and over again. Matthew 5 and 45. He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. All the many blessings God has given but particularly the spiritual blessings are what I have in mind here. You have an unscrupulous businessman who will do whatever he can, cheat whoever he can, lie to whomever he can in order to succeed, and he makes billions. And then you have um, here an honest Christian-type businessman. He works hard. He does his very best in order to get by, and he's able to make something but he's not able to make all that the other made. And then they look at each other and they begin to think, well, you know, you know, who's the more successful person in the business adventure? And the way the world looks at that, they'll look at the billionaire, the millionaire, because he's accumulated so much, and they look upon him as being such a great success. But we're not talking about physical prosperity here. We're talking about spiritual prosperity. 
And if you look at the spiritual side of this particular matter, then ask yourself the question, who's the one that's the more successful now? In 3 John, there's a little verse in 3 John, verse 2, that I'd like to remind us all about because there John makes mention of this matter. He says in verse 2 of 3 John, it's just a one-chapter book, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. See, that's a physical, asking for physical blessings there, that he be in good health, and he's praying for that. And then he goes on saying this about Gaius, as it goes well with your soul. I want your soul to prosper. Not only do I want the Lord to bless you physically, I want the Lord to bless you spiritually. There, in turn, it's correct to speak of spiritual blessings which God has in store for us. And as I thought about the point, I thought, I need to be as specific as I can, so I shall. You know, when I'm asking God to bless me spiritually, what am I saying? Lord, help me overcome temptation. Help me overcome sin. Shield me and make me safe, O Lord. Now, it would be serious error for me to think that I could never fall from the grace of God, for I can. 1 Corinthians 10 and 12 tells us, He who thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 says that if you're trying to be saved by meritoriously keeping the old law, you're going to fail. You've fallen from grace. So it's very possible for me to fall from grace. But it doesn't mean that it's probable that I will fall from grace. Simply because it's possible doesn't make it probable. I can pray to the Lord, Lord, help me. Help my soul prosper spiritually and keep me from sin and temptation, and help me overcome it. I reference 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 12. Let me go back to that. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But there's another verse that needs to be referred to. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, <clears throat> he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, there's a passage that is saying God will help you through it. It is possible that you will fall from grace, but it doesn't have to be that way. Simply because it's possible doesn't mean it's probable. I'm asking God, Lord, help me. Help me overcome the temptation. Give me strength so that I'll be able to live faithfully and pleasing in your sight. In the little book of Jude, one chapter book again, there are five of them in the Bible. There's verse 24. And you ought to outline that book. You ought to outline that verse. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's a beautiful doxology. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Did you catch that in the first part of verse 24? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The joy of salvation includes the matter of spiritual prosperity. Lord, help me overcome this sin. Help me overcome this temptation. And who could forget Romans 8? And verse 28, a Bible passage which talks not only about what God has done, 
but what God is doing in our lives when we appeal to him faithfully. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that Bible passage is Romans 8 and verse 28, and you ought to mark that in your Bible, because there that Bible passage is indicating the fact that God will help you overcome temptation. He helps me overcome temptation by me studying that word and putting that word in my heart and learning more about the word of God and helping me and shielding me and protecting me. Lord, help my soul to prosper. And when I know that God does that, then surely it causes my joy to increase. The Bible tells me there's a wonderful mediator that I have. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. A wonderful mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And I can go to him and pray. God, help me. I have difficulties, I have trials, I have tribulations. Help me, Heavenly Father. I need you. I need your help and I need your strength. And I'm praying through Christ, my high priest. I have that wonderful mediator who helps my soul prosper. The joy of salvation, you see. There's great joy in salvation. My soul will prosper in heaven itself. And we should never forget John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Now that I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said, that where I am there ye may be also. Now isn't that a wonderful thought? It causes my soul to prosper and gives us an element of great joy that God has given us exceeding great and precious promises, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. It helps me understand the joy of salvation. And I understand a little more about what made men sing praises to God even though they were in a prison cell at midnight. Their happiness was not determined by their circumstances or their things, but their happiness was determined by their conversion to Christ and their faithful obedience to him. But there's another point I'd like for us to consider, and I think that we need to consider it carefully. When I become a Christian and I've repented of my sins and been baptized into Christ and I've confessed my faith in Christ, I'm now a part of a new fellowship. I'm in a new relationship with God. The in Christ relationship is something we should study very carefully. As Paul uses that prepositional phrase many times in the book of Galatians, in the book of Ephesians, it comes over, up over and over again, chapter 1, chapter 2. There in this particular instance, I also have a new relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a certain joy to be received in that particular matter. People who love one another because we've grown in our love for Jesus Christ. One of the passages that's always impressed me along this line would have to be Acts chapter 4. And I turn to that just very briefly to see something of the great love that the church had for one another. And it was a source of great joy for them. And I'm, I'm thinking about verse 31. And um, I think I'll read, I'll start the reading there at verse 31. I want to spend just a moment reading. And what I want to get out of this and learn from this passage is the fellowship that they had with each other. And when they had prayed, Acts 4 and 31, 
The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now don't get the idea that the New Testament is teaching socialism here, but the New Testament is saying that they loved one another, that they had all things common. And the need was an emergency kind of need. The need was a desperate need because you had people that had come in from all parts of the Roman Empire for the day of Pentecost and they're in the city of Jerusalem and they stayed. They stayed because of what was taking place on the day of Pentecost. They were being baptized into Christ. Some 3,000 obeyed the gospel, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. And they stayed there, but there was a need. And so because of their love for each other and their fellowship, they went to the extreme of selling what they had to see to the needs of others. It's not a socialistic type of agenda that is being forecast here. It's simply a matter of they loved each other and they were in fellowship with each other because of their fellowship with God. And it starts with that. I have fellowship with God now because I have obeyed the gospel. And now I have fellowship with you. And I'm concerned about you. And you're concerned about me. And that's what every person at the Broadway Church of Christ wants to have. Stronger fellowship with each other. Nobody wants to live with a fuss all the time. Nobody wants to live fussing and fighting with each other. Who would want that? You know, we don't always agree with each other, do we? But we love each other. You might have a particular view on a point, I have a particular view on a point, and we let the Bible settle the matter on that point. And sometimes in matters of opinion, we don't always agree on matters of opinion. But we don't fall out with each other and fuss with each other because we love each other. We work together. You know, husbands and wives disagree with each other. Every husband and wife disagrees with each other over something. But they don't want to live in a constant fuss and a fight with each other. They get together on these particular matters. They don't want to be miserable, and they don't want to cause fussing and fighting, but they resolve the issues, and they resolve the matter, and they're together again because they're husbands and wives. And and that's what husbands and wives do. And congregations of God's people have got to learn to do that. They've got to learn to get along and work together and love each other and experience the joy of fellowship that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we eat together. I don't want us to think that simply because we eat together that that's all there is to fellowship. It's just a part of it. We'll work together. We'll visit together. 
we have Christian friends that we share in common with each other. And these relationships make us happier, more satisfied, our life fuller, because we have a wonderful fellowship one with another. The joy of salvation is a subject I'm trying to understand better. It's a subject that I want to be able to learn because no matter what my situation in life is, whether it's good times or bad times, I still rejoice in the Lord and have joy in my salvation. And even in death, Christ makes that great gain. Philippians 1.21 For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Christian life is the best of all possible lives lived here and it leads to eternal life over there. I receive the forgiveness of past sins based on gospel obedience. I have a present, meaningful, joyous life. And I have a secure future because of what Christ has done for me and for you. I hope that I can continue studying this matter about the joy of salvation. And I just wonder <clears throat> if I could complain less that maybe other people would be more willing to hear the message of Christ and want to learn about the joy that I have in my life. Maybe if I complain less about the things that are going on around me and more people see how happy I am as an individual, how satisfied, what a meaningful life I have, they'd be more willing to listen about a suffering Savior who died for us all and made eternal life possible so that we can live in confident hope. If you're not a child of God tonight, I urge you to become one by being obedient to the gospel of Christ. Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Now's the time to repent of sin, confess faith in Christ, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins and added to this fellowship of believers, the church of the New Testament. And I urge you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.